The reading is Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. This can be found on page 1048 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I have just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. Sue, thank you very much for reading. Please keep that open. That'll be really, really helpful. Uh, I want to begin with a question. What is the most awkward meal or dinner party you've ever been to or seen? Maybe, maybe you haven't been, maybe you've been fortunate enough not to be at a really awkward meal, uh, but maybe you've seen one on TV, like come dine with me or something. Sometimes it can be really sort of, <clears throat> can't believe they just said that and everyone's just quiet and what do you do? Well, whatever your experience of such awkward moments is, let me tell you, Luke 14 probably tops it. At the start of Luke 14, Jesus is invited to the house of a prominent Pharisee. He then proceeds to insult his religion, insult his pride, and insult and offend the way him and his friends use all their belongings and possessions. And at the time we get to verse 15, you wonder who's left to offend. And then something classic happens. See verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus has just said, uh, Paul Paul took us through it last week, use your possessions to help those who are poor, who can't pay you back, because then God will repay you at the resurrection of the righteous. Uh, And so this guy in verse 15, it's kind of like that moment at a dinner party where somebody's dropped a bombshell, everyone's gone a bit quiet and a bit awkward, and they sort of think, well, I'll say something everyone can agree with. and get everyone back together, all in one place. So, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Surely this will be a nice thing we can all agree on, Jesus. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. No chance. 
Jesus is not going to let them off the hook. He's going to keep pressing his point with these people he's eating with. He's not going to let people hide behind a mask of social convention and politeness. He's going to keep digging and get to the heart of this issue. And so Jesus then tells a story, a story that's going to upend this man's uh, presumption. Now, just a note of caution, a couple of preliminaries for us. A note of caution about this story. Uh, As with a lot of parables that Jesus tells, he's driving at one big point. So just be careful about pushing too many of the details too far. You could come up with some very strange interpretations if you did that. Uh, That Jesus only extends an invitation to his great party that Richard was talking to us about after the the senior leaders of his day have rejected it. Uh, That somehow we wouldn't be invited or everyone else wouldn't be invited if they hadn't rejected the invitation. No, no, he's not saying that. Don't push the details too far. Uh, But here are the main points that he's driving at. And a second preliminary, we are in um, a series uh, about Jesus and money. And maybe uh, we realize during summer we get some uh, visitors, some guests. Maybe you've moved to Manchester, you're looking around. uh, And there's a temptation at this point to think, oh, no, not a series on money. Isn't that what the church is always going on about, how they need our money or or something like this? Well, Well, if that's you at this minute, don't panic. Actually, we're doing this series on money for, for a couple of uh, very simple reasons. The, the first one is, Jesus talks a lot about it. It's not that we're obsessed with money, it's that we want to listen to Jesus. And if Jesus talks a lot about this subject, we should listen to what he has uh, to say. And the second thing to say is, uh, we're not doing this series because there's a particular need. We haven't got a building project or a giving concern uh, that we're driving at right at this very minute. And so actually, it's a really good time, isn't it, to take stock of what the Bible says, not, not to feel it when there's a particular pressure, a particular arm twist going on because there's a real desperate need, but actually, let's just step back and see what Jesus says. And in this series about money, I, I do want to say this one's a little bit odd, because it's not really about money. That's not Jesus' main point here, but we will see it will touch on that topic. It will touch on how we use what we've been given. So they're just a couple of preliminaries for us. As we dive into this story at this awkward dinner party, when this man has made this statement, won't it be great, Jesus, to be at that great feast that God has promised, that he promised way back in Isaiah? Won't it be great, Jesus? Blessed is the one who will eat at that feast. And Jesus is going to give this big warning. Don't presume you have a place. Grasp God's invite given by grace. Don't presume you have a place. Grasp God's invite given uh, by grace. And, And Jesus tells a story to make that point. So verse 16, and here's our first thing. The first thing about this great feast, this great banquet, which as Richard has said in his opening slot, um, is a symbol in the whole Old Testament, it was a symbol of the great feast God is preparing for his people. It's a, a symbol of salvation. If you, if you want to be one of God's people, if you want to be saved, then, then what's waiting in store for you at the end of time is a great banquet, a great party, like none other. And Jesus tells a story. A certain man, verse 16, was preparing a great banquet 
and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, you need to know a little bit about how uh, such events worked in the ancient Near East, in Jesus' culture. There were sort of two invitations. There'd be a, a, a general sort of invite to the people you wanted to come a few weeks earlier, Uh, so that the host would know roughly how many people were going to be there, how many he had to cater for, because he would have to go out probably to his land, see his herds and flocks, and think, how many animals do I need to kill to provide food for the feast, and things like that. So he would need to know a little bit in advance. So that would be the first invite uh, that you see in verse 16, that the many guests who are invited. Uh, But then, about a day before, or maybe the day of the feast, you'd send your messenger out, like like sending a little email or text message out to those who were coming, just saying, just to remind you, you know, it's today, the big feast. Uh, That's just supposed to be a formality. By the time you've said yes to the first invite, it's expected you're going to come. I guess it's a little bit maybe like when you have a wedding and you send out your, your invites and you get your RSVPs in, uh, and then you sort of expected that you're going to be going after you've said yes to the RSVP. It might be a bit like that. But there is a big difference. The culture in Jesus' day was what's sometimes called a shame and honor culture. And this event would be a big deal for the host. And to reject the invite at the last minute would not just be thoughtless or or rude. It would be a public shaming of this man. It would be a public shaming to reject his invitation at this point. It would be like saying, well, I know I said I'd come, but you're not really worth it. You're not worth bothering with. You're not worth my time. You're, You're such a nobody that I'm just going to ignore the invite now at the last minute. And so in verse 17, um, when they say, come for everything's now ready, the expectation is that they would all come. Because not to would be an insult. Which brings us to the second point. The invitations go out. The excuses come in. Verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. Now, that, that phrase, all alike, is a bit of a weird Greek phrase. It sort of means unanimously, probably, or like uh, each starting from the first or, or something like that. Like every single guest, it seems, who's been invited makes an excuse. And then Jesus just gives us three. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married, so I can't come. Now, occasionally you'll hear people say, well, aren't these silly excuses? And I think that's a bit dangerous, actually. Because I don't think they're meant to be seen as silly excuses as such. I think what Jesus is trying to do here is push on the fact that they could appear reasonable excuses. So the first one. This guy who's just bought a field and must go and see it. The word must there may well carry a sort of legal force. In some property purchases, what you do is you you buy the land, you've, you've looked at it beforehand, but then you go and inspect it again to make sure that what you've actually purchased is what the contract says it is. And it's like an important legal part where you then go to the person you sold it from and say, yes, 
we've, we've exchanged money and now we'll shake hands and say, this is exactly the right deal. And so he could have felt obligated to go. It was a legal transaction. And the same thing with the oxen, uh, that you needed to try them out in order to confirm the deal. And as for the person who's just got married, well, sometimes those feasts in that day and age would exclude women. And so maybe he felt under an obligation to his new wife that actually it wouldn't be right to leave her alone as he went to enjoy this great feast that had been prepared. And so maybe you can start to make a case and start to think, well, okay, maybe I can just see their point. And that's, that's the important point Jesus is making here. These things are also, uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, reasons for not going to war. If you've just bought a field or you've just bought some property or you've, you've just got married, you can be excused from, from fighting in, in, a, in a battle. And so maybe, maybe people would say, well, okay, it's not the best thing in the world to sort of excuse yourself from this party, but I can understand it. Maybe there is a case to make. And as soon as you understand that you understand the force of Jesus' parable. What he's saying to these guests around, who, who are presuming that they're going to be there at the great feast God prepares, he says you've got to actually take the invitation. And you can't let things that seem perfectly normal, perfectly reasonable, perfectly good things in and of themselves, you can't let them crowd in and take over so that you're distracted from actually saying yes to the invitation God's given you. These things, they're they're all about uh, money and possessions and the marriage and the details of life. They're not bad things. They're things that have to go on. And yet, Jesus is saying, there's a way that these things can so crowd into your thinking, so crowd into your diary, so crowd into your life that you don't actually go and take the invitation God's offering you. That you don't actually take the wonderful thing that God has offered, salvation at his great banquet. So you can make a convincing case that these things matter. Property deals and and the farming that was probably part of life and you would have needed oxen to do and marriage. They're all good things. They're all important things that need investing in in some way. But Jesus is saying they don't matter more than salvation. They don't matter more than being at God's great banquet because, boy, that's going to be a party and a half. You don't want to miss out on that because everything else pales into insignificance in comparison It's not that they are insignificant, but in comparison, you've got to get your priorities right. This man here, it's just a statue, but uh, is uh, Cyril of Alexandria, who was a 5th century uh, bishop. And in his commentary on this parable, he said this about the people who rejected the invite. They scorned a surpassing invitation because they turned aside to earthly things and focused their minds on vain distractions. And this is where the parable does touch a little bit on money and possessions. 
They're not bad things. They should be used wisely. Uh, They should be used relationally, as Paul was saying a couple of weeks ago. They should be used humbly, as he said last, last week. But we must understand, and Jesus wants us to know, more than just here, but he says it here, that such things as money and possessions can distract us. They can turn our hearts and our eyes aside, away from the most important thing, being at God's great banquet, to secondary concerns. Are you aware of the danger money and possessions can cause to any one of us? Not, and this isn't just for the rich. It's no good just to say, well, I don't have as much as the next person, so this isn't really for me. Any of us can have our heads and our hearts turned and focus too much on what we own. It's true for any of us. It's true for me. I know that I can worry about money. Worry about provision for certain things. Have a financial plan for the future. And if I'm not careful, I put so much time and effort and energy into thinking through how that's all going to work that I forget to invest time in my relationship with God. And so Jesus wants us all to know money can be a threat to us. Please hear that. I'm not saying it's particularly a threat for any individual in this room, but it can be a threat for any of us. And we need to deal honestly with our hearts and be willing to open them up and say, hey, uh, and and sometimes it's worth being accountable to someone else, someone you trust, someone you've known for a while, and just say, hey, I'm aware this could be an issue for me. Well, why why don't you help me with it? Why don't you help me to see whether it's distracting me from what my main focus should be? It's a very good principle. Don't get distracted because you can make a very plausible sounding excuse to yourself or to someone else. And yet Jesus says, don't you see you're missing out on something far greater? You're missing out on a great banquet. Which brings us to the final thing Jesus says in this story. So the invitations go out, the excuses come in, but then we focus on the host. And the host fills up his house. So verse 21, the servant came back and reported to his master that the owner, then the owner of the house became angry. And we just need to press pause there for a second. So in Jesus' story, the master of the house, the owner of the house, in lots of his parables, is a, a figure that represents God. Uh, and we hear God here, the master, becomes angry and we want to go, whoa, I don't like the sound of that. God uh, becoming angry. And it's at this point I just want to say, particularly if you're maybe quite new to Christian things, or or even if this is just an issue you're wrestling with, can I just say God's anger, when we read about it in the Bible, is is nothing like human anger. The church is always taught. In fact, the Church of England's 39 articles, Article 1 says God is without passions or impassable, which is a fancy theological way of saying God's anger, God's emotions don't work like human emotions. So when you read about God's anger in the Bible, don't assume it works like a human being's anger. See, our anger can often work where someone offends us or something like that. We get angry, we fly off the handle, and we say something or do something that's hurtful or damaging or upsetting or foolish. Well, God's anger doesn't work like that. Uh, God's emotions don't go up and down like a roller coaster like ours. He is impassable, which means he's steady and settled. 
And when we read about God's anger in the Bible, what we're really reading about is his settled opposition to anything that is evil. It's not that he's flown off the handle and gone into a rage. He doesn't work like that. And even the story itself brings this out. Because normal human anger in this situation, what would it do? Well, uh, the host might get petty and petulant, say nasty things about the people he invited, or, or just decide to wreck the party in a, a fit of pique. But not this host. How does his anger work? What does his anger do? It doesn't wreck the party. It fills it. So in his anger, what does he do? He orders the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room. So the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. The anger actually provokes the host to fill up the party. His anger doesn't lead to foolishness or hurt or wickedness. It leads to good being done. It leads to love being shown. It leads to people being brought in. And so if you're worried about God's anger as an idea, hear this story. It doesn't work like human anger. It brings people in to know of his love and his goodness, and his generosity. That's how it works. It's a good thing. Because it won't let evil happen and settle. And look at how completely devoted this host is. He just keeps going, doesn't he, until the house is full. There's still more room. Then go out further. I was thinking about how we apply this. And I think there's loads of ways we could do it. His commitment to going out. Well, what would that say to our commitment to world mission, for example? If God is this committed to seeing his party filled, then it must mean that we, as his people, should share his concern, which means we should be the kind of church that supports world mission. Well, we have lots of mission partners. We should be praying for them. We should be praying for the team that's going to go out to North Africa to see the burns in, in just a week or so. We should be committed to seeing missionaries served well, to seeing them uh, equipped and discipled and built up here so they can go out and serve on the mission field. And when they come back, to be encouraged and built up again. We should be looking to support them. It's never been easier to send an email. I mean, you might need to be careful in some cases and know what the rules and regs are, depending on where they are in the world, but... What an opportunity we have. And of course, for some of us, maybe God's laying it on our hearts that we're the ones who need to go out and fill up his great banquet. You, you, could, you could definitely apply it that way. And you can also look at the kinds of people God draws in. It's the people who could never get to a feast like this on their own. Uh, the poor, what, what does it say in verse uh, 21? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Well, as Christians, we should be committed, like our master is, to seeing those served and brought in who maybe the world would, would never see as those they wanted. Uh, so there are great Christian organizations that, that do work with these groups. So you've got Christians Against Poverty, great uh, charity that, that support people, uh, and the Trussell Trust trying to help people out who are in these uh, difficult situations. But more than that, these organizations are longing to hold the gospel out. 
They want to bring these, these people who maybe are on hard times, struggling. They want to bring them into God's great feast. Uh, another organization that um, I went to a, a, a day where they put on uh, at Platt a few uh, week, weeks ago, months ago, I guess, uh, livability. Well, here we, we talk about the host wanting to bring in the crippled, the blind, uh, and the lame, those who live with and struggle with disability, because in God's kingdom, those people are welcomed and valued and loved and brought into the feast. Great organization that, that work to include people who struggle with uh, disabilities and, and learning difficulties of various kinds to bring them in. Uh, and we have our own prospects group at this church run by, run by Karen and uh, Karen Horton. And that's a great way. It is one great way that we are looking to do that. But let's not rest on our laurels. There's always more that can be done. And that takes thought and energy and efforts. And maybe God's laying on your heart one of these groups or, or something like this that you'd like to support a little bit more openly, a bit, bit more, with a bit more energy. Because like our master, we want to see these people brought into our feast. And the thing is, when we use our time, our effort, our energy, and our resources in these ways to see the feast filled up, all of a sudden they stop distracting us. They stop being that distraction on our heart that could turn us aside and stop us from grasping God's invitation. What a God we have of such awesome generosity. And then we get a solemn warning in verse 24 as we come to the end of this parable. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. The tradition at the time was uh, if guests couldn't make it, you'd save them a portion of food and you'd ship it out uh, so that they'd get to experience a little bit of the feast. But Jesus is telling us God's kingdom doesn't work like that. You accept his invitation or you won't get in. And you won't get to experience the great joy of the feast of salvation. And so here's Jesus with these leaders of his day uh, around a, a dinner table in one of the prominent Pharisees' house. And he is saying to them, Don't presume you're going to be there. In the story, the host prepares this feast, and it would be a great cost. The feast would be very costly to prepare as he slaughters all these animals. And so it's a great insult to say, yeah, yeah, I'll be there, and then not turn up at the end. Well, what did it cost God to prepare the feast we're going to enjoy in heaven? It cost him his one and only son, who died on the cross, to secure our invitations. God's banquet is infinitely costly. And because of what Jesus has done, we get in absolutely free. If we'll take the invite. And so Jesus wants to say, don't presume you have a place, Pharisees. But that counts for all of us. Don't presume you have a place. Grasp God's invite, given by grace. The people Jesus was eating with were in danger of being far too worldly, worldly-minded, to accept the invite. 
And so Jesus warns them, and by his grace through his word, he's warning us as well. But friends, I don't just want to end on a warning. (laughs) Don't you see what a great feast it's going to be? Don't you see what a great host we have of such abundant, superabundant generosity? Why would you let anything else distract you from being there? Nothing will live up to this. And if it's that great, we can't keep it to ourselves, can we? We too have to be those who go out into the lanes and the highways, into the places God's sending us, and saying, friends, look, there's a feast. It's free of charge. Just come and enjoy. It's a banquet for your souls like you've never had before. What a God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for his teaching. We thank you that he is uh, kind enough to warn us where we need warning. He is kind enough and loving enough uh, to give us that warning. But also thank you that he knows what a great party it's going to be. And he's compelling us. He's saying to us, please, whatever you do, don't, don't miss out on that because it will be for your joy. We thank you, Father, that you are preparing a great banquet, and we thank you that it is free of charge to any who will accept that invitation. We pray we'd be those who will grasp it with both hands and would not be distracted by other concerns and let our eyes be taken off our final destiny. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.